You think you've got issues? Hi, I'm Dr. Laurie Appel. Welcome to my podcast where we will be talking about a variety of mental health issues because, you know, we've all got issues. So today I'm going to be talking about depression. Depression is far more common than people think. In fact, it's estimated that about 8% of adults in the United States have experienced depression. And since the pandemic, this number has risen. Now, I'm sure those of you listening know at least one person in your circle of family or friends who has experienced depression, or perhaps you're listening because you have experienced depression yourself. Now, in my podcast on anxiety, I said that there is a difference between having anxiety and having an anxiety disorder. Likewise, there is a difference between being sad and having a depressive disorder. One cannot get through life without experiencing the normative ups and downs of human existence, which means that we will all experience sadness, grief, boredom, jealousy, etc., at least at some points during our lifetime and probably many times throughout our life. None of us is entitled to a life without struggle. But a bad day, or even a bad week or a month, does not mean that you have depression. It's a normal reaction to life's challenges. If you're feeling sad or you're grieving, it's normal to cry or withdraw a little bit. But usually, sadness and grief is pretty temporary, and you start to feel better in a few days or a few weeks. However, a person who has depression might experience this sadness, along with other negative emotions like anxiety, guilt, anger, and irritability for longer than a couple of weeks, and these negative feelings are accompanied by feelings of hopelessness or helplessness, sleeping and appetite might be disrupted, and the person might even have thoughts about self-harm or suicide. And importantly, people who are depressed just do not get joy out of life. Sometimes they're not even really sad, they're just kind of flat and listless. Depression can also interfere with things like concentration and the ability to remember, and it can also cause physical aches and pains. So what causes depression? Well, as with most things, it's a very complex answer. Depression is a combination of biology, psychology, and environment. So let's first touch on biology. Depression is in part a function of our biology. Whether an imbalance of brain chemicals or faulty mood regulation by the brain, certain medications or certain medical problems like, say, thyroid disease, our specific biology can contribute to depression. Many different neurotransmitters, as well as certain hormones and other chemicals, are involved in the process of regulating mood as well. So millions of chemical reactions in the brain are at the root of how we perceive things, how we feel, and how we experience events. So that means that no two people with depression are exactly alike, and no two individuals will respond to medication or therapy or even a stressful life event in the same exact way. All right, so let's move on to the psychological origins of depression. Cognitive psychologists will point out that your view of the world influences how you feel. They theorize that unacknowledged assumptions or core beliefs about the world and certain cognitive distortions, the ways in which we distort things in our head, influence how we perceive events and therefore how these events will make us feel. For example, mental filtering is a distortion in which we selectively focus on the negative aspects of an event, creating an effect like a drop of ink in a glass of water. So for example, if you give a speech and trip over a couple of words, even though the speech was good overall and you got positive feedback, you might selectively focus on your blips, casting a negative view of the whole speech. 
to further highlight the idea of how our perceptions influence our moods. I use this example with my clients because it is something that I have direct experience with. All right. Let's say I'm at the mall with my toddler who begins to throw a fit, and I see some other mother or father um, observing this tantrum. Now, I can look at that parent looking at me, and I can interpret their observation in two possible ways. First way, I can think to myself, that other parent is judging me, thinks I'm a horrible parent for not controlling my kid, and you know, I probably am a horrible parent because if I was good enough, my kid wouldn't behave this way. I'm clearly a failure as a parent, and there is probably something really wrong with my child that they're, and they're growing up to be, they're going to grow up to be a criminal or something. Now, the second way I can think to myself, that man or woman has probably been here before with their own kid and is likely feeling sympathetic and giving me a look of solidarity and support. And this is what kids do from time to time. My kid is pretty normal, overtired and overstimulated at the mall. I just need to have some sympathy for both me and my child and go and take a break. Now, I ask you, which of these two interpretations is likely to make me feel like crap or okay for the rest of the day? Now, more psychoanalytic or dynamic theorists would point out to the relationship between loss and depression, loss of self-esteem, loss of an important person, loss of love, etc., and or internalized anger. And they would identify the root of depression in early childhood experiences, especially loss experiences. From a social or environmental perspective, it's obvious that one's life situation and environment will impact one's mood. A divorce, a job loss, say a global pandemic, all of these things can trigger a depressive episode. Think of it as a loaded gun. You might have a genetic predisposition or biological underpinning of depression, as well as a tendency toward negative leaning assumptions and cognitive distortions, and even a possible history of loss or neglect. But Despite all those factors, you might get along okay. The bullet isn't discharged. But then a significant situational or environmental event comes along to pull the trigger, and now you have a depressive episode. Now, a pretty basic Google search will give you all this information and more on depression. Its causes, its treatment options, things like that. And please Always go to reliable sources like APA.org, which is the American Psychological Association, or other reputable, meaning .edu or .org type websites. I'm going to briefly identify common treatment options for depression, but then I really want to get into some of the things that I have observed over my years of practice and that have helped me understand what might fuel and maintain depression with my clients. So the first course of treatment for depression is therapy with a good practitioner who can diagnose and understand the differences between sadness, grief, and depression, and who, who can help you identify a toolkit to help you manage your symptoms, improve your functioning, and prevent future relapses. Therapy may include a referral to a psychiatrist for medication. And while many people balk at the idea of medication, the reality is, is that the longer our brains go without adequate regulation or firing or connectivity of neurons that can regulate our mood, the worse we can become and the more our symptoms can begin to cause us to make choices that could result in long-term damage to our lives. Now, most therapists would acknowledge that there are 
lifestyle adjustments that can be helpful regardless of any type of treatment that you're engaged in, you know, cognitive, behavioral, or psychoanalytic, things like regular exercise, getting adequate sleep, reducing stress, getting social support, eating well, and I've talked in past episodes about reducing consumption of processed foods and how this helps with mood and energy. Uh, Also engaging in uplifting activities like church or meditation or gardening uh, and reducing alcohol and other drug use because there is ample research out there that excessive alcohol and drug use is associated not only with higher rates of depression, but also relapse of depression. But now I want to dig a little deeper into some of the things that I have seen over the years to be contributing factors in triggering and maintaining depressive symptoms in my clients. Let's start with the paradox of choice. Today, there are an overwhelming, or there is an overwhelming amount of choices we make on a daily basis as compared with centuries ago. So let's look at something as simple as shopping. Centuries ago, we walked to the closest store and bought basic goods. Pretty uncomplicated. Today, we have to figure out what store to go to, what we have coupons for, the best route to get to the store, which card to use to pay, which of a myriad of brands we want to buy, etc., etc. On the one hand, having more choices is great. It gives us more power and control over our daily lives. However, when we are feeling low, the strain of having to make decision after decision and the worry over making the right decision can be overwhelming. And many of my depressed patients are maximizers. And what I mean by that is that they constantly pressure themselves to make the best choice, always causing undue stress and pressure. So what do we do about this? Well, we can work on letting go of the pressure around choices. With patients, I sometimes have them identify things that are low-risk choices and put a time limit on making that choice. Say, what coffee flavor to get at a Wawa, what shoes to wear that day, or what to watch on Netflix. That way, with insignificant choices, they can avoid wasting time and energy that will deplete them. Similarly, planning ahead can help. If the weight of figuring out what to eat for breakfast every day feels overwhelming, just consciously plan on having the same simple thing every day, like peanut butter and banana on whole wheat toast, so that it's not something that you even have to think about. Basically, simplifying one's life can help manage the stress of having to make too many choices on a daily basis. Next, and this is a really big one, cut back on social media time. Why, you ask? Because research shows that too much social media time contributes to depression and low self-esteem. It is human nature to compare ourselves with others and to compare our lives with what we believe other people's lives are like. Now, here's a quote from a recent novel that I read that I love. Anyone can nurture a myth about their life if they have enough manure. So if the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, it's probably because it's full of, and I'll say crap here so that I don't have to put an explicit warning on this episode. It's probably full of crap. We have so many ways to manipulate our image, both our actual physical image and in an overarching kind of public image sense. We can selectively filter, Photoshop, or otherwise nurture a picture of ourselves and our lives that we want people to see. So it's very easy for us to think that the rest of the world is happier, prettier, and more successful than we are. And, of course, this makes us feel less than. 
We don't have the face or the body or the life of the people that we see on social media. And this contributes to our feeling depressed. So what to do? Well, limit it, of course. Delete social media apps. Um, use technology to only let you use certain sites or for a preset amount of time. And avoid logging in several times a day. Maybe just reserve a set time for logging in. And that's it. Remind yourself often that we cannot believe what we see on social media. It is merely a picture someone created and nurtured. And on top of social media, really, media in general can really bring us down these days. There are very few outlets that have a reasoned, low-key approach to providing information. With hundreds of options out there, platforms are competing for viewers and listeners with attention-grabbing and often fear-inciting headlines and news. And this can really bring people down, especially in the last few years. So tune out. Whatever your opinion or view, watching, listening to news can really make you feel like the world is a scary, awful place. And this can certainly contribute to depression. So get your news in small, reasonable doses, a need-to-know kind of thing. And then tune out and tune into something that will uplift you or give you a good laugh or something. The other interesting thing that I have noticed is that depressed people tend to overcommit so that they feel constantly drained and overwhelmed by their schedule. For these people, it's a matter of both evaluating what they can take off their plate and also making sure to include time to practice things like mindfulness, meditation, and other forms of self-care. These stressed out folks need to refuel and recharge. They also need to learn to say no, even if they feel guilty about it. And they need to let go of the need for perfection. A wonderful book that I often recommend to anyone searching for insight and growth is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. You can Google it. But one of the agreements that he talks about is the agreement to always do your best. But what he emphasizes is that your best varies on any given day. He says, your best is going to change from moment to moment. It will be different when you're healthy or when you're sick. And I mean this both physically and emotionally. In all situations, simply do your best and you will avoid both self-judgment and regret. So when you're depressed, your best may be 50% of what it is normally, and that's okay. It's still your best. So rather than getting trapped in the kind of all or nothing, either I'm at 100% or I do nothing, just dial down your expectations when you're in a bad place. Your best on a given day may simply to get a shower, may simply be to get a shower and take the dog for a five-minute walk. And if that's the case, be proud of that and give yourself due credit. As Don Miguel Ruiz explains it, if you try too hard to reach an unattainable goal, your best will never be enough. But if you do less than your best, you subject yourself to regret and guilt. Realistically assess where you are at on a given day and do your best that day. No more, no less. The other thing that I've noticed is, is that people who are depressed seem to have lost a connection to things that matter to them. Um, Johan Eduard Hari is a journalist who wrote an interesting book called Lost Connections about what he believes to be, given his research and interviews, the underlying root causes of depression. Now, no book or any one person has all the answers, but I do think that there is value to be found in many different sources, and he is one of them. Hari believes that the real cause of depression is our increased disconnection to what gives us meaning. So this includes a disconnection from things like meaningful relationships, meaningful work, meaningful values, 
concept of a meaningful future, or a loss of connection to the natural world or to childhood trauma. And in fact, what I often see with clients who are depressed is a loss of meaning in one's life. Sometimes it's a loss of connection to relationships or a meaningful work life or our core values. And very often, it's a loss of connection with our past and with the natural world. So how can we address these lost connections? Well, this is where therapy can really help in terms of identifying where the sources are of our lost connections. Do we need to find a tribe? Do we need to address our problems at work? Or do we need to find a way to live our values? Whether that is going to church or volunteering. Now, I'm a big proponent of volunteering. Or finding more time with our family. Perhaps we need to look at our childhood and come to, to some sense of connected resolution with our past. And frankly, all of us could benefit from more time spent in nature. Study after study has shown the benefits to mood of connecting with nature. Now, another thing that I've noticed with my clients who are depressed is, is that they tend to gravitate toward and maintain toxic relationships. Connecting with people who only serve to make them feel bad about themselves. Again, here's where therapy can come in handy to help you assess which relationships bring you down and which ones buoy you up. Now, I realize that sometimes in life we can't avoid toxic people, whether it's because we live with them or they're a family member or we work with them. Sometimes we just have to engage with toxic people. Then the work becomes finding ways to inoculate yourself from their toxicity. You cannot. I repeat, you cannot change someone else. You cannot make them a different person. However, you can work on doing two things. One is to work toward loving and respecting yourself so that you expect expect respect and kindness from others. And second is we can build a protective armor so that another person's attempts to put us down will deflect off that armor that protects us from taking on someone else's opinions or judgments. You can also work in therapy on recognizing toxic people, sort of the red flags, so that you don't fall into the trap of being pulled in to toxic relationships that will leave you depleted and depressed. Finally, people who are depressed often don't prepare well for potential triggers. And by this, I mean that we all have some knowledge of the things that will likely trigger us. But depressed people may not cope preemptively. So for example, if you know that visiting a parent in a nursing facility or seeing your ex at an event is going to set you back, you plan accordingly. Many depressed people just focus on accepting the unavoidable without a plan. So the plan that I always instruct people to do is to bookend these difficult but unavoidable events. Accept that it's going to be a rough day, but approach it like you would a physical hurdle. If you, say, had a race on a given day, you would want to get a good night's sleep. You would start the day off with a good breakfast. And after that race, you would hopefully congratulate yourself for that accomplishment of trying your best. And you would take a nice hot shower, do something relaxing. Well, you can do the same with an emotional hurdle. Start the day off with fortification. Eat well, surround yourself with positive sounds and images, maybe exercise or take a walk outside, talk with a friend, then brace yourself and cognitively prepare for a rough emotional event. Finally, amply reward yourself after. Give yourself credit for getting through it. Not 
berate yourself for feeling crappy during it, but acknowledge the strength you had for facing it and for doing your best. Give yourself a reward in the form of something healthy like venting to a friend or a cuddle with your pet or even a non-toxic indulgence, a specialty coffee at Dunkin' or a little affordable retail therapy. Basically, identify what is support for you and use it liberally on either side of an unavoidable trigger. Okay, well, I hope that all of this has given you some food for thought. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Laurie, and I will see you next podcast. Dr. Laurie Appel is a licensed psychologist in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Her license and practice information is available on her website, lauriepelpsyd.com. All information provided on Dr. Laurie's podcast is solely for educational and informational purposes and is not meant to serve as psychological counseling. If you have personal issues you would like to explore, please contact a licensed mental health professional in your state.